Hey y'all, you're listening to the Faith Church Sermon Podcast. We are so excited that you're connecting with us today. It is our desire for you to grow as a result of the resources we provide here. We pray that this blesses you today as you seek to know Him more. Hey, thanks for hanging out today. If you're joining us online, we want to welcome you here as well. I want to show you something. So take a look up here at the screen. Have you seen one of these before? It's called an inkblot test. And these things were made popular in about the 60s by psychologists. And the theory is that we can all look at the same image and we see something a little bit different. And depending on what you see, it tells you something about your personality. Are you an introvert? Are you an extrovert? Are you a, a deep thinker? We could look at the exact same thing and we would see something different. So this is sort of the the most basic in this series of of images. And this one, they say most people, when they look at it, they see a butterfly or a bat. Are you good with that? Is that what you see? A butterfly, bat, maybe? It's kind of good. There's other ones. There's a series of these images. This gets a little more complicated. A lot of people apparently see elephants in this one. I don't, I'm not sure. Maybe I could see elephants maybe facing each other, their trunks. I'm not really sure. Apparently, if you see this red part, if that's what stands out to you and you point that out, uh, I don't know how to tell you this, but you're like, you're a sociopath. I mean, you're just, you got problems. It's not my test. They came up with the rules, not, not me. There's others that are, that are more complex. This one has a bunch of colors in it. I have no idea what you see here. Maybe the Eiffel Tower in the middle or something. These look like two blue lobsters on the side. I don't really know what they're doing. But listen, the point is that we could look at the same image, you and I, and we might see something totally different. How about a person? Could we look at the same person and see something different? Could you and I look at a a picture, maybe of a politician, Wouldn't we have different opinions? Wouldn't we, one group of people would see something and another group of people would see something totally different? So we're in ancient Israel and it's time for a new king. Last week we saw that they chose this guy Saul to be their king and Saul looked the part. Saul looked like a king, tall, dark, and handsome. This was a warrior. This was a guy they could follow. But Saul wasn't what he seemed. Saul turned out to be weak and he was evil. And God had warned them. God had said, listen, I know what you see. He looks the part, but I see something different. You don't want this guy. And the people go, no, we do want him. We want Saul to be our king. And God goes, okay, I'll give you what you want. And so Saul has been reigning for probably about 40 years. And finally, God goes, all right, that's enough of this guy. We got to get ourselves a new king. And what I want to look at today as we're continuing in this series, marching through the Bible together, I want to look at their search for a new king because it's fascinating. God is going to choose someone that you and I wouldn't choose. We're going, we'd look at this person and what we're going to see, we're going to go, that doesn't make any sense. He's not a king. But apparently God sees something Different, And so we're going to walk through this story and we're going to try and understand what God sees, what makes him select this man as the king that you and I, we can't see. And along the way, I think what it does is it's going to open up another question, a question for us about what does God see when he looks at us? So if you got a Bible with you, I'd love for you to get it out. We're in 1 Samuel 16. If you got your phone, find a Bible app, something you can follow along. 1 Samuel chapter 16, the events that we're going to look at today take place uh, around 1000 BC. We're in this place 
called the promised land. Remember, the promised land is this land that God has given to the people, and it's in the Middle East. It butts up against the Mediterranean. It is beautiful, and it's lush there. But life's not easy. We haven't really talked about this, but the Israelites were supposed to go into the promised land and drive out the other nations. They were supposed to wipe out these other countries, but they were lazy. And so they only sort of went halfway. They let the people stick around. They're kind of cohabitating in the promised land with all these other nations. And so they constantly find themselves at war because the Israelites think this is their land, but everybody else is like, hey, we're here first. And so they're always attacking them. And this is why they think they need a king. And so God gives them Saul. And Saul has a chance to make everything right. Saul has a chance to be this mighty warrior, but also this man of God who is going to drive out these nations to make it so that just Jews inhabit the promised land. But he's lazy too, and he's disobedient to God. And so what we're left with is this mess. We're left with the Jews in the promised land, but all these other people. And it's crazy. In fact, so much that chapter 15 ends with Samuel writing that God regretted making Saul the king. Here's our story. Chapter 16, verse one. So the Lord says to Samuel, God's speaking, how long will you mourn for Saul since I've rejected him as king over Israel? Why had he rejected him? You can go back in the previous chapters and read the story over and over again. God gives Saul a first chance, a second chance, a third chance to be obedient, and Saul completely ignores God. So God says to Samuel, fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be the king. Saul fit the part. You look at him and you're like, this guy is going to be king. He's going to reign forever. This is the kind of guy that we want to follow. But he's He's not the right guy. He wouldn't listen to God. So there's going to be a new king. Verse four, Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace when the prophet, when the man of God comes to town and says, I have something to tell you. You don't know if that's good news or bad news. And so they're terrified. Samuel responds to me. He goes, yeah, yeah, it's okay. I've come in peace. He says, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. So consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. And then he consecrated Jesse and his sons, and he invited them to the sacrifice. Verse 6 says, when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab, and he thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. All Samuel knows is that it's one of Jesse's sons who's going to be the next king. It was Saul. It's not Saul anymore. It's going to be one of Jesse's sons. And so he goes to Bethlehem, and he meets with the family, and in comes this guy Eliab. This is son number one, and it is immediately obvious that this is the guy. I mean, this is like... He looks like Tom Brady meets The Rock meets Elon Musk. Like everything you could ever want in a king, this is our guy. We, we want Eliab. And Samuel's like, this has to be him. He looks like a king. He acts like a king. He dresses like a king. People are going to want to follow him. This is our guy. This is the man that we want. He's more king than Saul ever was. Watch this, verse 7. The Lord speaks to Samuel. And he says, Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. Well, that's interesting. He looked like a king. He looked like he could play the part, but he's 
not the guy. God goes on and he says, the Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord, God says, I look at the heart. It's almost like, going, like God is going, Samuel, I, I, I see what you see. I mean, this guy, tall, dark, and handsome, this, he looks like he's a perfect candidate. This could be the guy. But Samuel, I see something that, that you don't. I can see his heart. I know who he is, and he's not our guy. And so Samuel's sort of like, ah, okay, what do, we, what do we do next? He goes, Jesse, it's not him. What else, what else you got? And so Jesse calls in the next son. He calls in Abinadab, son number two. And he asks him pass in front of Samuel. And Samuel says, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Eliab comes in. Abinadab comes in. They look like kings. In will come son number three, number four, number five, number six. They all look the part. Every one of them could be the next king of Israel. Each time they come in, Samuel's going, this next one, I know this next one's going to be the guy. He walks in and Samuel's like, yeah, that's him. And God goes, no, that's not who I want. That's just another son that I've rejected. They all look the part, but it's not them. So verse 11, Samuel asks Jesse, are these all the sons that you have? And Jesse goes, well, there's still the youngest one. He's tending the sheep. Samuel says, well, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. There's one more son. He's out in the field. He's taking care of the sheep. There must have been something about this son that even his own father doesn't think he's anything special. Because all the other sons are there. The man of God has come to town. Everyone wants to see this. And now he comes to your home and he's having lunch with you and he wants to worship you. And Jesse invites all his sons except for this one. Something in this son, Jesse goes, and maybe it's just because he's the youngest. I'm not sure. But there's something about this son where even Jesse's like, he's not going to be the guy. We don't even need to bring him in here. Bring in all the other sons. But this isn't going to be the one who is chosen. Verse 12. So Jesse sent for him. And he had him brought in. He was glowing with health and he had a fine appearance. He had handsome features. And the Lord said to Samuel, rise and anoint him. This is the one. This is our guy. The runt of the litter, the youngest of seven brothers. His name is David. The way he's described here, the literal translation of the Hebrew is that he has a reddish toned skin and pretty eyes. That's what this says. Cool. So the next king of Israel, the guy who's going to save the nation, has a good complexion and nice eyes. Awesome. Oh, and he plays the harp. Do you feel safe? <laughs> this is our guy. This is the guy that God chooses. And it doesn't make any sense. This isn't how it works. The oldest son gets chosen. That's how the world works at the time. It was very clear. It should have been Eliab. What's going on? Well, it goes back to what God said in verse 7. God goes, people look at the outer appearance, but I look at the heart. I see something that people don't. I look deep inside a person. You go, okay, well, then God must have seen something. What did God see in David? It must have been something special. Fast forward a little bit to the New Testament. In Acts 13, God explains this a little bit. He says, I've found David, son of Jesse. This is God speaking. I found David, son of Jesse. He's a man after my own heart. God sees something in David, something that no one else 
could see. And he goes, I want David to be my king. There's something there, Samuel, that even, even you, the man of God, you can't see. There's something there that, that dad, Jesse, you, you're not able to see, but I see into David's heart. There's something there. David has, he says, a heart like mine. David is, is full of kindness and goodness and love and, 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 and mercy, and, and no one else can see it, but God goes, I can. So you go, great. David's going to be our king, and it's kind of cool. We got this Hallmark movie, right? It's like younger brother who's always sort of back in the shadows, but really he's awesome, and he's the hero, and he's going to rise. And you go, this is great, except no, that's, that's wrong. I mean, in some ways, that's how we think of David, nice heart-playing man after God's own heart. But man, this story is a problem. Because that's not who David really is. We've made him out to be this perfect, innocent character. And it's like, yeah, he's in the lineage of Christ. He is a foreshadowing of Jesus. He is the guy who writes the Psalms and, and apparently is a man after God's heart. And he leads God's people. And okay, maybe. But do you know who David really was? Let me tell you, when David, long after David was anointed as king and he had risen to power, David does this thing where he, I guess you could say he has an affair. It's probably something more nefarious than that. But he, he meets this woman and he gets this married woman pregnant. And instead of confessing and instead of going, I was wrong, he comes up with this plan where he is going to kill her husband. I mean, the guy is also his friend. You can read all about it in 2 Samuel 11. It's, it's bad. This is who David is. Sweet, innocent David murderer, adulterer. And, and, and you get this, and you're trying to put the pieces together. You're trying to make sense of this because a thousand years later, God will say, this is a man after my own heart. It doesn't make sense. And if this was the only black mark on David's record, okay, maybe, maybe you go, well, you know, we all uh, make mistakes. We all have sin in our life, but this is just scratching the surface. David, when he's at the height of his power, God says to David, listen, I've, I've given you all this land. I've made the country safe. I've fought all these battles for you, David, and, and, and I've put you where you are. You don't need a strong army anymore. You have me. But David wants to be a big man on campus. So David goes, you know what I want to do? He gets all his generals together. He says, you know what I want to do? I want you to go throughout the country, and I want you to round up more soldiers. We need more troops fighting for us. And even the generals are like, wait, wait, wait a minute. Didn't God say, don't do that? David goes, I don't care. It's what I want to do. I'm king. Go do it. And he deliberately defies God. I mean, he just spits in God's face. God told him, don't do this. And David goes, I can do whatever I want. I'm the king. This is David, a man after God's heart. My favorite story about David, it's about a young guy with a slingshot and a giant, right? You know this one? David takes on Goliath, beats him, cuts his head off. Do you know why David fought Goliath? I mean, have you ever really looked at the story? Have you ever really read it and tried to understand what was his motivation for fighting Goliath? Because it seems really cool. David stands on the battlefield in front of Goliath and he says, I'm fighting you today in the name of the Lord Almighty. And it sounds really holy and it sounds really sweet. Do you know why David was on the battlefield? What his motives were? Two reasons. Cash and women. The king said, I'll give anyone who fights this guy my daughter and money. And David goes, wait, what? Really? Three times. 
He's like, you're not just playing around, right? Tell me again, what is the prize? If, if I go out there and fight this guy, what do I get? Money and a woman. David goes, give me a sword. Let's go. Like he, that's why he walks onto the battlefield. You're sweet, precious, innocent little David. This is who he is. Murderer, adulterer, angry, selfish, arrogant, greedy. This is David. And you try and make sense of it. You go, man, after God's own heart? It's not like God didn't know all this stuff. Again, when he says that, it's a thousand years later. This is the guy I want to be king. This is the guy whose heart is aligned with mine. What are we missing? We have to be missing something. Go back to Acts 13. Listen to this again. God says, I found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. Now listen, he explains it. David will do everything I want him to do. When God looks at David, he doesn't see perfection. He doesn't even necessarily look at him and go, that's the guy who, who looks like a king. That's the guy who looks the part. We act like David's pure as snow. David should be in jail, not leading God's people. But when God looks at him and he looks at his heart, he goes, I see something different. See, Saul was disobedient constantly over and over again was given first, second, third, fourth chances. And he was constantly disobedient to God. But God goes, here's David and he's a mess. His life is filled with sin and brokenness. And he's done these things that are bad. But when I see his heart, I see humility. I see that David is listening to me. I see that he's willing to, to, hear me, to do what I say. I mean, the words that come to my mind as, as God describes what's unique about David and why he's a man after his heart, despite everything that David has done, is I see David as this character who's humble and he's willing. God goes, this man has, has humility in his core and he's willing to follow me and he's willing to trust me. He's not perfect. He's awful in some ways. And yet David is the man who also writes, God, my soul thirsts for you. God, I find rest and peace for my soul when I'm in your presence. It's hard to get my mind around to make sense of David. How can he have this track record, this history? I mean, this is who he is. And then God say that he's a man after my own heart. David is complex. It's not as simple as shiny, perfect king of Israel David, and it's not as simple as murder or adulterer. He's complex. He's this mix. He's like, he's kind of like us. He's this mix of like, I, I want to be, I'm for God. I want God's goodness and love flowing out of my life. And I'm a mess. And I'm really selfish. And I've got some stuff in my past and in my present that's not too good. And it's, it's complicated. So let me turn the story a little bit different direction. Let me kind of walk this story forward and go, is there anything for us to learn from David's story? Is there something to harvest out of this? I think there is. Remember, God goes, people look at different things than I do. People look at the outside. But I, God says, I look at the heart. And so you walk this story through, through David's life and, and, and what's going on there. And I would turn the question and ask to you, when, when God looks at your heart, what does he see? 
And you got to peel back the layers a little bit because on the surface you go, when God looks at me, what does he see? I'm, I'm, I'm tall or I'm short. I'm dark skinned or light skinned. I have brown eyes or green eyes or blue eyes. Okay, keep going. Peel back the layers. I'm an introvert. I'm an extrovert. I'm type A or type B. Keep going. Go another layer. I'm anxious. I'm at peace. I'm mature. I'm unhappy. Go, go another layer. Go to that place where no one else knows you. Your best friend doesn't know you. Your small group doesn't know you. Maybe even your spouse doesn't know you. Go deep in your heart where only God can see. What does he see? My sense of this story is that's where God is looking. That's where, with David, that's where he wants to see. Past what David looks like on the outside. Past the things that we would see, murderer, adulterer, all those things. Look past that, even past king. And, and deep inside of his heart, where David can't hide. I think that's where God wants to look in your heart, where you can't hide from him. There's no secrets there. What does he see? When he looks in David's heart, he sees humility. He sees a willingness to listen to him, a willingness to follow him. Is that what God sees when he looks in your heart? I think there's something about this story and about this, this question, this idea that it's both comforting and it's challenging. Because what if God looks at your heart and what he sees is hardness? What if God looks at your heart and what he sees, you know, you can, you can put it all together on the outside. You can look the part. But what if God sees skepticism? What if God sees arrogance? What if God looks at your heart and he sees hatred? What if God looks at my heart and he sees a, a rebellious child? There's no hiding from him. And there's part of this story that's challenging me and it makes me stop and, and go, wait, 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 wait a minute. Am I David in this story? Or am I Saul? Am I the one whose heart is hard? I look the part, but my heart is hard. I mean, do you know that as a Christ follower, your heart can get hard? You know that you can be stubborn sometimes? You can be prideful. Sometimes you're living in sin. And it doesn't mean that you're not still a son or daughter of God. The Bible says that if you've placed your faith in Christ Jesus, that you're a new creation. The old is gone. You are a daughter. You're a son of the king. But sometimes your heart can get hard. And there's something about this story that at a soul level, I think should stop us a little bit to go, are we David? Or my Saul. And if you're more like Saul and your heart is hard, or you've been disobedient, there's something in this story like you should repent. You should ask God, soften your heart. I would challenge you to be brave enough to go, God, when you look at my heart, what do you see? God, when you, when you look deep inside, I'm not hiding from you, God. Do you, do you see sin? And do you see pride? God, do you see hatred in my heart? Do you see racism or sexism? Do you see judgment? God, do you see skepticism in my heart? And God, if you do, would you show me, please? And we can let the knowledge that, that God sees our heart, like 
That shouldn't shame us. That should draw us closer to him. It draws to him in, in repentance and say, God, would you soften me? I hope that is a challenge you're willing to take. This should push on us. And this should challenge us to repent if that's what needs to happen. But the flip side, and I hope the louder message of this story, yes, there's challenge. I don't want to step past that. I don't want to soft sell this, but I think there's also a message of comfort because you can't hide from God. He sees you. He knows you. And yet, like David, he doesn't dismiss you. And so I want to just give you a couple things to take away from this story that I think are, are comforting. A couple things about the character of God for you to just sort of chew on and talk about the way that God sees you. So a couple things. One, I see this, is that what others overlook God sees. Imagine David, he's little brother. He gets left out in the field while the big brothers get to go hang out with dad and be a part of this special thing. We probably have some younger siblings, right? That we know what this feels like. Yeah. Uh, a lot of us have been overlooked in our lives. You know what it's like to be passed by. And here's this story and God goes, I see you. And I don't just see what others see. I actually see you and I know you. I, mean, I think that should feel good. Does that feel good? It, it does to me. Even in little ways that God would go, I, I, I saw your heart when you helped that person in need. I saw your heart when you didn't take credit. You gave it to someone else, even though really you did something that deserved credit, but you passed it along. I mean, there's ways that we can live life and kind of be like, I'm for God. My heart is for him. I want to do good things, but it feels meaningless and, and no one even noticed. And God goes, I see you. In David's story, I, I just see this as an encouragement that God sees. I see it as an encouragement to keep going. That if you felt like the youngest brother, you felt overlooked. You felt like I'm doing these good things and it seems meaningless. It seems like no one cares. Keep going. The Apostle Paul writes to the Galatians and he tells them, don't give up. Keep going. Don't grow weary, he says, in doing good because at the right time you'll receive your reward. Don't give up. Don't grow weary in doing good. Don't feel like I'm starting to lose heart. Everyone looks past me. No one sees what I'm doing. No, God sees. Your father sees you. You're never overlooked. The second thing I get out of this story I see here is that what others use to shame you, God uses those very things to draw you closer to him. And that's sort of the journey of David's life. The bigger the mess, the more God draws him to him. And that's why there's hope because there's so much in his life that's messy. There's so much in his life that people would use to shame him. Just like you and me, there are things that we've done and said and the way we've treated people, decisions that we've made that would, people would use to embarrass us, shame us, disqualify us, to say, you don't look the part. And God goes, no, no, no. People look at the outside, but I look at the heart. And the very things that people use to shame you are the things that God will use to draw you close to him. So God says things like, oh, People have called you a liar. It's okay. Come to me. Let me show you what truth and grace look like. Oh, you've been involved in an affair. Come to me. I will teach you what faithfulness really means. Oh, you're embarrassed by something. Let me show you my son, Jesus. 
he was embarrassed too. And the very thing that people will throw up as roadblocks to shame you are the things that God goes, come here, give me those things. I will use those to draw you closer to me. If your heart is soft, if you're humble, if you're willing. I mean, look at David. David was a lying murderer, adulterer, disobedient to God. And God made him king of his people. Why? Because God saw his heart. He saw that he was willing. He saw that he was humble. He saw that he was generous and loving. And he sees you too. So we're marching towards the Easter season. We're going to celebrate the death of, of Jesus who died for our sins. And I think about Jesus and I go, he didn't look like a king either, right? And yet the son of God left heaven and he came to earth to die on a cross, to forgive us of our sins forever and to purify our hearts. And so the question is, is relevant for us today. When God looks at our hearts, when he looks at your heart deep inside, what does he see? And if he sees someone who's hurting, find comfort that he sees you. If he sees someone who's frustrated or waiting for what's next in life or for him to answer their prayer. He sees you. He hasn't overlooked you. If he sees someone who's hard-hearted, who's cynical and skeptical, who's angry, he goes, that's okay. Come to me. Repent. Let me make your heart soft again today. And, and, and he will do that. And if God looks at you and what he sees is someone who's far from him, someone he's not had a relationship with, today you can ask Jesus to forgive your sins and he will do that. Your sins, past, present, and future. God will welcome you into his family. You don't have to wait. There's no magical prayer for that. There's no formula. It's just talk to him. But hear what God has said. He sees you. He doesn't look at the outside. He doesn't look at you and go, you know what? You're just the sum of all your decisions. You're the conclusion of the things that you've done in your life. Everyone else looks at you that way, looks past you, looks at you in light of things that you feel shamed by. And God goes, I don't look at you that way. I see past it all. I see deep into your heart. I know you and I love you and I will always see you. Would you pray with me? God, thanks for your word. Thanks for the reminder that you see us because as we go through life, we live on this planet with billions of people and, and we feel like you know we're just a number and we get lost in the shuffle. The God of creation sees us deep into our hearts. God, thanks that you don't see us by all of our mistakes. You don't see us the way other people see us. You see us for a person, a son or daughter that you love. God, for anyone here today listening, joining us online, who is far from you, who has never put their trust in Jesus Christ and asked Jesus to forgive them of their sins, I, I pray, God, that they would do that now. They would just talk to you 
You say that if we simply believe that Jesus died on a cross and rose from, again, from, from the grave to new life, that, that we can have all of our sins forgiven, past, present, and future, and have new life. God, if our hearts have been hard, if we've been judgmental, cynical, arrogant, God, if we've been disobedient and walking in sin, God, right now we repent. We confess that sin to you. Ask you to lead us in a new direction. God, use the things that we've done, the mistakes that we've made, those things that would shame us in other people's sight and even in our own sight. We look in the mirror and we see the things that we've done, but God, you use those very things to draw us closer to you. You redeem those things. God, challenge us to be bold, to ask the question, what do you see when you look at our heart? And to listen and to be humble and to walk in your ways. God, thank you for Jesus. He didn't look like a king, but he came. And his death on the cross forgives us of our sins. And because he rose from the dead, we can have new life in you today and forevermore. God, we thank you for your son. We pray these things in his name. Amen.